Joshua 1, 1 through 11. These scriptures God is telling, instructing Joshua as he installs him as the new leader of the Israelites. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people. Go through the camp and tell the people. Get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your very own. Well, yeah, we're in this series again, long story short, where we're telling the whole story of the Bible as quickly as possible. So we're going from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and we've been in it a few weeks now, and we'll definitely be in it a couple more months at least. And and uh, we're going to, over the course of about 13 weeks, try to hit the high points of the biblical narrative. What's the, what's the big story that the Bible is telling? And, and so, yes, what Pat said about if you can follow along with those readings, that will help fill in the gaps for you some, because there's just no way that we can hit all of it up. You don't want me to hit all of it up here during this series. It would get quite extended. So, uh, I encourage you to do that. And we have so far we've hit creation and we've talked about how God ordered his creation uh, and designed it to function a certain way and how sin entered the world when we decided we might want to make it function a different way that we might want to live in a different way than we were designed to live. And so things got out of bounds and out of balance and, and God's good creation was twisted into something broken and in many ways, uh, well, death entered the world where there had been life and so that is kind of just sets the frame for the whole rest 
of the biblical story. And we read about how God chose to work through ordinary people, people like you and me, and, and some of them maybe even worse than you and me. And uh, he, he picks these very ordinary people like Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to work through you to bless all nations. I'm going to work through you to, to make right what humankind has made wrong. And so then that also frames the rest of what's going on in Scripture as, as we continue through the weeks. And we saw how uh, God did bless Abraham and they did become a nation, but they ended up enslaved in Egypt. And God used Moses to deliver them out of Egypt. And so they, that was that huge thing where they, they left and then God gave them the law. He said, this is how you live as my people. And then they're doing what? Like... Why did God lead them out of Egypt? Was it just to wander around in the wilderness? No, he had made a promise to Abraham that he would give this, his descendants a land that would be their own and they would be his people and they would be a light to the nations. They'd be like a city on a hill, right? That, that would draw glory and point people of all nations to God and to his ways. And so they, he had this vision for them, but they came up to the promised land and the, the story's famous that they sent spies in and they came back and said wow it's great look at these grapes the size of your head you know and it's just incredible a, a land flowing with milk and honey and but the people are incredibly huge and powerful too and there's just no way that we would ever take it now you got to remember Israel was fresh out of Egypt fresh out of slavery these were not lean mean fighting machines Right? They had no military experience, right? They were bricklayers and such in Egypt. Now, they might have been pretty tough dudes. I mean, you know, hard manual labor for generations will probably do that to you. I'm sure they were tough, but they had no swords. They had, I mean, they had just very little stuff, right? They, they had very poor and primitive weapons, even by that day's standards. They didn't have horses and chariots and iron workers and all that kind of stuff to make shields and swords and armor and all this. They, they just didn't have that stuff. They, they were not an impressive army. Okay? They're just a bunch of people that were just slaves that were now wandering around in the wilderness and hoping to take over this land that's fortified and that has... And actually I've learned that those warlords... You know, we, they're called kings in your Bible. When they go in, into the land and start fighting, they'd fight against this king of the, these ites and that king of those ites. And, and we're picturing like these entire nations with kings, right? Well, actually, they're more like city kings. Like, we might even better call them like warlords that Egypt would place in the metropolitan areas. Uh, and they would enforce kind of Egypt's will. If Egypt wanted cotton, then you grew cotton. If Egypt wanted whatever crop, then you grew that crop. And those warlords that they placed there made sure that you did it. And that's how they got their weapons. Because Egypt said, here's some weapons. You know, we nations still do this today, right? I mean, read the news. You know, how, how do those guys get those weapons? You know, how do those guys out in the bush, you know, get those AK-47s or whatever that they're working with, right? How do they get those military weapons? How do they get those missiles? Well, some government gives it to them, right? to pursue their interests in that area. And so it was a similar thing where Egypt very much was involved in that region. And so they equipped those guys with 
I mean, military know-how and military might. And Israel had none of this. And so, yeah, they looked over there and they said, not a chance. And so God said, fine, you wander around in the wilderness until every last one of you that I brought, that saw what I did bringing you out of Egypt is dead. And I'll send the next generation in. And so that's what happened. And we're going to talk about this conquest today. And I was trying to think if I had ever really like been in a fight or even really been prepared to fight for something. And this is the story that came to my mind as I was thinking about it. And <laughs> check out this picture. Blast from the past. Look at those two. <laughs> Alright, that was at least 11 years ago. Over 11 years ago. And this is probably in the first month that Julie and I were dating. It's one of the earliest pictures we have of the two of us together. And uh, it's on the, the balcony of my apartment. My really snazzy <laughs> apartment. And I think this was the first time that we went to church together. Does that seem right to you? Well, let's say it, it is. I think so. I think it's the first. We got back and, and uh, we took a picture because that's what young people in love do. But uh, Julie was kind of fresh out of a, a former relationship with a guy, I'm just going to say was a little crazy. All right? And this guy was also, he, he liked to work out. He had muscles. Um, <laughs> and I got these reports. I had scouts that went into the enemy territory and, and reported this to me. So I had my, my roommate was dating Julie's sister. And so he kept me in the know on things. And he's like, this guy, he, he's pretty ripped, all right? You know, you, and you see me there, I'm like 10 pounds skinnier there than I am here. <laughs> I, I'm not going to be climbing into a UFC ring anytime soon, right? Uh, <laughs> that's not me. And, and, and really, you know, my friends were fairly athletic, but they were more like the running type athletic. <laughs> Which doesn't really help in a fight. And so, anyway, this guy was, you know, a little bit intense. And he wasn't taking it well that, that Julie was leaving him for me. And that was the report from the scouts. And so it was just kind of like this thing of, well, what, you know, if he tracks me down, then how are we going to handle this? You know, and am I going to just say, oh, hey, you can have her? <laughs> or, or am I going to take a beating? You know, that's pretty much the options there. And, uh, you know, so we would, me and my, my buddy Kenny, who's now my brother-in-law, we'd say, well, you know, could, could us and our posse take him and his posse? You know, that's kind of the questions you got to answer, right, at that stage in life. It, and you've got to decide, is this worth getting beat up over? You know, is this worth fighting for? And, and, you know, it's not just at that stage of life. It's not just about the girl. I mean, the girl is great. Don't get me wrong. But there's more at stake than just dating a girl. I was 20-something, and I was uh, working. You know, I had a career going, and, uh, and, and no lady friend to share it with, right? And so I was looking for a partner. I was looking for a wife. Julie was fresh out of college. She was looking for a husband. And so the stakes were high. This wasn't just like, you know, middle school love or something. You know, we were, we were both looking for a new life. And so, yeah, that's worth fighting for. And I just wonder how many of us in our culture today are prepared to fight for things anymore that are worth fighting for. Uh, we, uh, I don't know, I just, I just wonder how much backbone we have left in our culture 
on the one hand, we're obsessed with fighting and violence if it's on a screen, right? If it's on a video screen or a movie screen, or what, then the more gore and, and violence, the better. But I'm not sure how many of us still have the backbone to stand up and fight for the things that are worth fighting for. Or even to take a beating for the things that are worth taking a beating for, if that's what's required. Certainly there's things worth fighting for. Your marriage is worth fighting for. Your family is worth fighting for. Freedom is worth fighting for. And sometimes there's people who do so much evil and oppress other people that that's worth fighting for. I don't think that anyone's come back from World War II and said, nah, we shouldn't have gotten into that. That wasn't worth it. Especially once we found out what was going on, that we didn't even know the half of it. There are some things that are worth fighting for, and I want to talk to you today about something that's worth fighting for, and encourage you to be strong and courageous. I want you to imagine that you're with the Israelite people. Moses has just died. All of the generation that left Egypt has died. I mean, think about that. See, I've always read this account where they crossed the Jordan River as like the sequel that's not quite as good as the original, you know? I mean, when God, you know, Moses and the waters of the Red Sea part and then they, you know, overflows and take, overtakes Pharaoh and he's wiped out. And that's, the, that's the big story. And this is like the little Jordan River and yay, it you know, moved aside and they went across. It's just, it's like the feeding of the 4,000, right? It's never going to live up to the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, people are just going to always talk about the 5,000. It's a thousand more. <laughs> you know? So it, it's one of those deals where, okay, so they crossed the Jordan River. But for those people standing there that day, none of them had been there, except maybe Joshua and Caleb, when Moses had stuck his staff in the Red Sea and parted it or whatever. You know, that, they hadn't seen that. And so they're standing here at the banks of the Jordan River and they're looking across this river at this new land after 40 years of all they ever knew wandering around in the wilderness. That's the only life they knew. Wow. And you're standing there on the brink of the fight of your life. And I just wonder how they felt. Maybe you could place yourself for a moment there, just standing with them on the banks of the Jordan River, looking over into this promise, this unknown promise that none of them had ever lived. They hadn't even seen this land. Anyone in their family, no one in their family had seen the land since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived there. And now they're supposed to go over there with their lack of military might and somehow get across this river <laughs> and take this new land and start a whole new life where they're going to settle down and not be nomads anymore picking up their tents all the time but actually build towns and start lives and put down roots and just a whole new way of being and living so many unknowns 
They had no clue what it was going to be like. Julie and I had no clue <laughs> when we were standing on that balcony where we'd be today. But we had hope, right? And those Israelites, they had hope. They had a promise. They had a vision of, of something better than they'd ever known. And so God parts the Jordan River and they walk across and the battles begin. Violent battles. Old school style. Right? Not like your enemy is a thousand yards away and you've got snipers. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's hand-to-hand, -hand, violent, bloody combat in which most people died not directly from a sword or a blow but from infection and things like that from wounds sustained on the battlefield it was a ugly gruesome way to live and it was a culture that was very barbaric that glorified war and gore in fact what you read about in the bible is from what i've heard very tame like g maybe pg <laughs> compared to the stuff that you might read from nations like Egypt who were the military powerhouses and reveled. That was their glory, how they could destroy other cultures and other people and they talk about completely annihilating and wiping them out and I mean just the terrible, horrible, gruesome details of what they would do to people and that was their glory. That was what showed how awesome and powerful they were and, and so this was it was a weird culture to us who live in this day of oh someone's being mean to me I'm gonna call 911 the police are gonna come and settle this thing and probably drag them off to jail and we will see you in court <laughs> right like a whole different world than that it's a hard world and God used people in that hard world ordinary messed up people with their messed up ways just the same as he uses people today he worked in spite of their culture of their problems of their violent nature hmm when we read about the conquest, for some folks it causes them a lot of trouble. They, they read this and they're like, man, God's telling them to go wipe those people out and then go wipe those people out. And I mean, didn't God just tell them, thou shalt not murder? And then now, you know, here they are going around killing people. And what's the deal? I want to just cover a few questions real quick. How are we supposed to accept the idea of God instructing Joshua? to lead war when we would never accept God telling someone that today. I mean, if I walked up to you today and said, alright folks, we're going to go out there and slay all these people. <laughs> God told me so. You'd say, we're finding a new church tomorrow, honey. <laughs> right? You wouldn't say, oh yeah, God told him so, so let's go do it. And so we read this and we're like, okay, so God talks to Joshua and he says, go kill all these people. And then all the people say, yes, Joshua, we'll do it. And they walk into the land and do it. Why, why is that okay? And, and I was kind of like, huh, yeah, that's a good question. 
Well, for one thing, you got to know the background, right? If uh, if if my parents' generation had been walking around with Moses and seen the ten plagues, and then seen the Red Sea part, and seen you know manna fall from heaven, and hear the thunder on the mountain as God's voice spoke to him, and, and if we said, "No, Moses, you go talk to God, not us," then you might have a different impression. You know, <laughs> like if. If you saw, all of a sudden everything was rumbling and fire came down from heaven and a big voice came in here and started talking and you were all scared and, and ducking for cover and and then and you said okay Neil you talk to God from now on and I'd be like why anyway that'd be scary so just say that that happened and then I said okay let's go get them you know then that might you might have a different perspective on things right. If you stood at the bank of the Jordan River and the waters parted and you walked across on dry land because the Ark of the Covenant went before you, then you might have a different perspective about this whole, yeah, well, maybe God is talking to him. <laughs> you know, maybe we should do it. So context is, is everything there. Another question that we might ask is, did God only love Israel and not other nations? I mean, why is he being so nice to them and wiping out everyone else? And we'll, we'll cover a little more of that in a minute, but, but we can say unequivocally, no, God did not only love Israel. In fact, the only reason he called Abraham was to ultimately be a blessing to all nations. So that can't be right. And question three that we might ask is, why doesn't Jesus or any of the New Testament writers ever complain about violence in the Old Testament. People in our culture complain about that all the time. But why didn't Jesus complain about it? Why didn't his apostles complain about it? I mean, surely they knew the stories better than we did. Surely we don't think that our moral compass is more developed than Jesus. So, how do we explain that? I want to suggest to you today that one possible explanation for that is that we drastically underestimate the seriousness of sin and its consequences. We drastically underestimate the seriousness of sin. And if you want to use your note cards today, that's the first part of it. We talked about this in the first week of the series that we confuse what sin is and we think that it's rule breaking that lands you in hell someday. But there's more, so much more about what sin is and why it's such a big deal to God. God created and ordered his creation a certain way. And sin literally means to miss the mark. To, to miss that mark. Like if you're shooting for what you were designed for, if you were shooting to be truly human, as God intended that to, me, to be and to mean, then you're missing the mark. That's what sin means. You, you veered off course of the way God designed you to live. And the consequences of that wreak havoc in your life, but not just your life. The consequences of living in a way that's different than God designed us to live also wreaks havoc across societies, both locally and beyond. 
Not only that, it wreaks havoc according to scripture even on the land itself and the creation itself around us. And so you'll hear the Bible talk about things like this and talk about even how creation is waiting and groaning for Jesus to return and set things right because even creation is broken because of our brokenness and our missing the mark. Sin brings death and ruin and destruction to our world. And we drastically underestimate the seriousness of it. And if we did not underestimate the seriousness of it, we might better understand or be able to fathom, or at least entertain the notion that there might be circumstances in which it would be the most merciful and best thing and the most just thing for sure for God to wipe out a people who had gone so far down a sinful route. For the sake of society, for the sake of generations to come, for the sake of the very land itself. In fact, when God promised Abraham that land, the promised land, back when he was making that covenant with Abraham that we studied a few weeks back, this is a verse that we read. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. He's told them about how they're going to end up in slavery in Egypt. They're going to come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God's telling Abraham, this isn't the time yet. I'm not giving you this land yet. Their sin, the, the people living there right now, has not yet reached its full measure. But the path that they're cruising down is going to end in destruction. So, whenever you read about violence in the Bible, if God is ordaining it and saying it's okay, it always has to do with either self-defense or divine judgment for sin. One or the other. And sometimes both. In fact, much of the conquest, when you read about it, it's, you know, the Israelites were hanging out and a bunch of kings, warlord kind of guys got together and said, hey, let's go try to wipe them out. We don't want them in our land. And they come and attack and Israel reacts in self-defense. Other times, you'd be surprised at, at this account, how, how few, few times it was like, oh, you know, in fact, no times was it like, we are so good militarily that we're just wiping people out. It was always like, God just like, you know, knocked the walls down. Okay, you know, have at them. Uh, you know, God confused them and threw them into confusion. And it's God at every step of the way doing the miraculous to deliver this land to his people. And yet he expected them to be involved. We drastically underestimate the seriousness of sin. But is that the whole point of the conquest? Is that the whole point of the promised land? Well, that's just what we have to understand if we're going to understand the point of the conquest. So the question I want to ask you today is actually, are you laying hold of the new life God offers? God offered Israel a new life, but they had to lay hold of it. The first generation wasn't willing to do it. 
this generation was. And they were led by Joshua, a military commander who took them into the promised land and led them as God led him. And it was hard work and it was bloody work. They had to be very strong and courageous to lay hold of the life that God offers. And here's the deal. As we think about how does this apply to us? What does this mean for us today? There's a promise of a new life before us too. Are you laying hold of it? And I want to tell you, share with you just a few things that I, I think we should know practically if we want to lay hold of the new life that God offers. And the first thing is this. That laying hold of new life, if that's what you choose to do, will always mean that you have to deal with your old life. Laying hold of new life always means dealing with old life. And even in the New Testament, the word pictures that are used for dealing with our old life are violent. Put to death the deeds of your flesh. Die to your old life with Christ on the cross and walk into new life. Are you prepared to deal with your old life? Are you prepared to fight? Because it's going to be a battle. You know, we say it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, right? It's uh, old habits die hard. We've got lots of little phrases like that. So we know that if you want to start dealing with the old stuff, it's going to be a fight. You're going to have a fight on your hands. Are you ready to deal with the old life in order to lay hold of the new life? Another thing you need to recognize is that this isn't just a you thing. Like, a lot of times we fall into this camp. Either we make it just about us or just about God. Like, I've just got to get some self-control, right? I've just got to make this happen. I've got to get disciplined. Get it done. Alright? It's on me. I'm just going to make this thing happen. I'm going to be a good person starting today. And uh, we make our New Year's resolutions and we're just like, yep, going to power through. Or, we're like, I could never do that. Couldn't do it. So it's just up to you, God. You know, do something with me if you want to. I'm just hanging out here. I got no strength. I'm just weak. Right? That's that's kind of how it, we fall into these different camps. And sometimes we go back and forth, right? For a while, we're like, I got this, I got this. And then we're like, I don't have this. This is terrible. If God wants to do something, He can just do it. But according to Scripture, it's a you and God thing. And this conquest paints a really good picture of that. There's no formula for how you partner with God to lay hold of a new life and deal with your old life. There's no formula for that. It's not like God will take care of this part, A, B, and C, and you take care of you know, D, E, and F, and it's all good to go. It's messy. It's like, and it's always different. You know, you walk up to one battle, and God's like, just march around seven times. <laughs> what? Yeah, march around seven times, blow your trumpet, and it'll be good. <laughs> okay? And so then God knocks down all these walls, and then you're like, oh, that was easy. Uh, and then the next battle, it's totally different. It's like, yeah, I'll leave the sun in the sky, and you can just keep on fighting for a really long time. Hope you can hold up. <laughs> you know, it, it's always different. 
but it's always a partnership where you know where the real power comes from. But you always have to be engaged and involved. And Jesus operated the same way. When he did ministry, he was always involving the disciples. I mean, the feeding of the 5,000, we brought that up earlier. I don't know why it keeps coming up today, but hey, it does. And, you know, fighting and eating, that's what we do. So he passes out all this bread and fish. He did the breaking and the multiplying, but he expected them to go and find the stuff to start with and to pass it all out and to gather it up and all those things. He, they were involved in the process. So here's what we know. It's a you and God thing. If you're going to lay hold of new life and deal with your old life, you're going to have to do it in partnership with His Holy Spirit. Because you don't have the power or the wisdom or the know-how. And yet you can't just sit on the sidelines because God doesn't work that way. You've got to get in the game. But you've got to remember where your power comes from. And you've got to be ready to be flexible because you just never know what God's going to do next. Or how he's going to work in that particular uh, scenario that you're dealing with. Last of all, you're going to need to be strong and courageous. You're going to need to be strong and courageous. And if you don't think so, then you, once again, are underestimating the seriousness of sin. We're not just talking about behavior modification we're not just talking about, hey, stop looking at pornography. We're talking about root out the, the twisted desires of your heart and bring them back into alignment with a true way of thinking and feeling about things. This is why I'm saying it's a you and God thing because you don't have the power, I don't have the power to just make ourselves feel different. We can set ourselves in a position where we're listening to the right message. We can listen to the truth and begin to internalize it. But it takes the Holy Spirit's power to actually change hearts and minds. It's not just about, you know, stop telling lies it's, or, or stop losing your temper. It's about, you know, like dealing with the pride issue that makes you lose your temper every time you don't get your way or whatever. It, it's so, such a, a difficult battle. So that's why I say put on the armor of God. Get ready for a fight. That's why over and over in that passage we just read, God said, be strong and courageous. Verse 6. Or verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. <laughs> How about the next one? Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? I think you have God. <laughs> I think we're beginning to see a pattern. Be strong and courageous. Don't tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And he even ends the whole chapter with, just in case you need to hear it one more time. Only be strong and and courageous. Get in the fight. Fight for the new life and the hope and the future that God has for you. Fight to put to death the old life that's holding you back from walking into that new life. And you can do this with hope. 
Because Joshua has already fought your battle. That's a weird thing to say. I'm going to try to make sense of it here in a second. I think this is really cool and this is where I want to end things today. But Joshua has already fought your battle and laid hold of the promised land. Your new life. And I'm not talking in metaphors. Joshua has literally already fought your battle and laid hold of the new life. The, the name Joshua, it means Yahweh delivers or Yahweh saves. God saves. God delivers. And he used his servant Joshua a long time ago to lead his people from the life that they had been living and to deliver them a promised land, a new life. Joshua, that name, is the English translation of the Hebrew word Yeshua. Joshua, Yeshua. In Hebrew it's pronounced Yeshua. Something like that. I'm not promising to be fluent in uh, my Hebrew vocabulary or whatever. So, but when they wrote the New Testament, they didn't write it in Hebrew, right? They, write, they wrote it in Greek, which is maybe more similar to Hebrew than English is to either of them, but pretty different. And so when they translated Yeshua into Greek, they didn't translate it Joshua because they're not English. They translated it as Iesus. It looks like this. Yeshua and Iesus. And there's this story in our New Testament where an angel appears to a young man and said, your fiancé is going to have a baby. And it's okay. It's from God. And when the baby is born, I want you to name him Iesus. Because he'll save his people from their sins. The English translation of the Greek word Iesus is Jesus. You didn't know that Jesus was Joshua. <laughs> Yeshua. Iesus. So that's why I say that Joshua has already fought your battle. It was violent. Because sin is serious. If you doubt it, look at the cross. But he's also stepped into the new life, the promised land, that he holds for you and for me. When he resurrected from the dead, he was the first to enter the life that promised new resurrection life that he holds for all of us. And so we have the chance to join him. But you'll need to be strong. And you'll need to be courageous. And there's a fight to fight, but you don't have to fight it alone. Are you laying hold of the life that God has to offer? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the hope we have of a new life 
in a new land with you. God, we've often underestimated our enemy and under-relied on your Holy Spirit. Please be at work in our lives in powerful ways to help us put to death the enemies in us just as you helped the Israelites so long ago. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.